Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. The NBA playoffs are moving along quite nicely and getting us closer for an NBA Finals Part 3. We'll get into that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on Episode 66 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The New York Mets are already dealing with injuries to some of their better players on the field, but it's what's happened off the field last week that has made headlines. When the sports media has to report that a three-day suspension and a sex toy were unrelated incidents, you know it was yet another chapter of drama for the Metropolitans. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. York Mets tend to have enough problems on the field that they could do without any added ones off of it. However, the lure of New York City nightlife and the watchful eye of the city's tabloids often bring more bad than good for the Metropolitans. The latest drama for New York's second-best baseball team involves a dark weekend for the dark night and a poorly placed dark sex toy. First, there was Matt Harvey, a pitcher pegged as the next savior for the Mets pitching staff who is yet to live up to those expectations, but parties like he has. This season hasn't had the best of starts to this point either, with Harvey sporting a 514 ERA in six appearances on the mound. 
With Harvey slated for a start against the Miami Marlins last Sunday, the right-hander was notably absent when the Mets showed up to City Fields the day before. A three-day suspension and a miss to that start was announced from Mets Brass, and rumors began to swirl to where, oh where, the dark night could be. Original reports stated that Harvey remained home with a migraine and had difficulties when attempting to report his absence to the Mets. It didn't take long to discover that a throbbing head would have come from a different source. Sources cited Harvey at One Oak in New York City, where he celebrated Cinco de Mayo well into the early morning hours before then heading out to the golf course later that day. After not hearing from him for much of the day or perhaps not believing his alibi, the Mets even went as far as to send security officials to Harvey's apartment later that night to check on the Dark Knight, who reportedly answered the door in his Batman onesie, which is of course an assumption since there was no mention of what type of pajamas Harvey wears. He would then be informed of his suspension the following day and missed out on about $82,000. Harvey would later hold a public apology two days later, stating that he was embarrassed for his actions and ready to get back on track. What he failed to mention was that he also might be suffering from a broken heart after his former supermodel lover Adriana Lima was spotted at the Met Gala after party with her former boyfriend, New England Patriots wide receiver, Julian Edelman. In layman's terms, Harvey saw his girl with an ex, blew off some steam with his buddies with some margaritas and a game of golf, and felt like hiding under the covers to wallow in misery for a literal dark night before pulling himself together for his scheduled Sunday start. Perhaps Harvey is indeed the hero the Mets deserve, but not the one they need right now. Shortly before the Harvey announcement came one of the biggest boners in Mets social media history. As part of a new tradition, the Mets now literally crown their player of the game and show off that achievement on their social media. The hero of Cinco de Mayo was TJ Rivera, who hit his first home run and also contributed a game-tying double in a Mets win. The picture documenting the moment seemed innocent enough, until some internet detectives noticed a large rubber phallus standing in rookie catcher Kevin Ploiecki's locker. The picture was quickly deleted and reposted with a proper crop, but the damage had been done. Reporters then had the unfortunate task of asking players who actually owned the sex toy and if Harvey's suspension came from the ramifications of the rubber. Newsday writer Mark Craig even tweeted out, I went to Jay's school so I could tweet this. I'm told Matt Harvey's suspension is not related to the sex toy fiasco from the other day. To no surprise, no player stepped up to claim ownership of the foul phallus. But when it comes to superstitions in baseball, there's no telling what luck the sex toy will bring. A silent guardian. A watchful protector. The rally dildo. I'm John Lund. For sports news, read like real news.
Let's take a quick break to edit our photos. When we come back, we'll talk to an NBA writer about some anecdotes from the season before breaking down all things NBA playoffs. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know who will make the NBA Finals and why. The NBA playoffs have been a dud so far, at least when it comes to its two best teams who became the first duo to start the playoffs 8-0 in NBA history. However, we might get some excitement in the remaining series to see who plays those two teams, but really, aren't we all just waiting for the finals to get here already? Jesus, Mary and Joseph. This week, we had Josh Eberly make his triumphant return to the show to help chat some hoops. Josh is a writer for Hoop Mag and shared some thoughts on some topical points from this year's NBA season, chatted about some of his recent work before we dove headfirst into the NBA playoffs to break down what's happened to this point and to recap what seems inevitable to come. You can follow Josh on Twitter. He's at Josh Eberly. That's J-O-S-H-E-B-E-R-L-E-Y. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Josh Eberly. He's an NBA writer for Hoop Mag and a friend of the show. Josh, thanks for coming back on. How you been? I've been good. It's, we, were, you know, we were talking pre-show, but I we can't even remember how long it's been. It's been too long, my friend. Far too long. Before we get into the NBA playoffs, I wanted to start with some topical things leading up to them, and what better place to start than with Russell Westbrook, I guess. An MVP season, setting the record for most triple doubles in a season, averaging one for the year, and though it all came to an end, as we know, with the 4-1 loss to the Rockets in the opening round, were you as impressed as I would say the majority of NBA fans were with what Russ was able to do this season? No, I, I, I don't think I was. Um, I feel like Russell Westbrook has kind of gotten screwed by the reactions of people one way or another. Um, people seem to, it, he's very, his, his poll right now, with how polarizing he is, it's very reminiscent of Kobe Bryant in the non Shaquille O'Neal non-Pau Gasol days. Uh, what makes Westbrook special is the intensity and the amount of effort. What makes Westbrook bad is the lack of foresight and awareness at the end of games. Sometimes he checks some bad shots. I try to be fair and in the middle, but people really want to pull you to one side with Westbrook for sure. Do you see him finding success? Is there a key to that, whether that's bringing in a lesser role player or another one, or if the group that he has now isn't as bad as people might seem, it's just that he might not be doing the best job getting them involved, even though he obviously can get the 10 assists a game as well. I promise I won't be political the whole show. However, I'm going to split the distance on this one again. The the cast that OKC has is better than most give it, than give them credit for. However, it was still significantly worse than the Rockets and a lot of the other teams they were compared to all year. Westbrook could be successful, but the onus will be on him 
It changed the way he played specifically in the fourth quarter. And it was a it was a problem this year. You could tell Westbrook would come they would he would go to the bench at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth with a lead. The supporting cast would blow the lead and he would come back in and play terrible, terrible, out of control basketball and lose them those games. You don't totally blame him because he's trying to do too much, but that has always been the problem with Westbrook. It's not the fact that he now has Victor Oladipo and his teammates stink. It's the fact that this is how he's always played, and this is how he played with Kevin Durant. It's going to be on Russell Westbrook to change the way he plays basketball and see things a little bit differently when the game's on the line. Yeah, it was almost painful to watch in a way that opening round where that exact scenario would happen. He would go out, come back in in the fourth, and just try to take over, which has gotten them wins throughout the regular season. Don't get me wrong. He's hit buzzer beaters. He's put on impressive performances. But it was just interesting to see the different dynamic when, say, James Harden was able to kick out for a three-pointer that would go, and Russell Westbrook wasn't even looking for somebody else to shoot toward the end of the game. So an unfortunate way for that to end. Is there something that surprises you from the regular season? If that's a team or a specific player, we had the Knicks drama, as we know. We had Miami coming up short of the postseason after that great run in the second half. We had the Suns acting like 70 points was an NBA championship. Is there something from the regular season in general that you remember from this year? Wow, yeah, probably. <laughs> There's lots of things. I mean, this year for as boring as it was, was thematically, and it just played out exactly how, to date, it's played out exactly how everyone imagined it to play. There were a lot of good little stories along the way. I mean, that Devin Booker story was, was fun for a lot of reasons to talk about. Isaiah Thomas and his journey this year before the playoffs, before losing his sister, going from, and, and, and I said this before, but being the, getting cast in the NBA as a, a six-man or an energy guy off the bench can sometimes be like being a friend with benefits in real life. You're, you're or, or being in the friend zone. You're cast in this role, and no matter how great you are or how much you defy expectations, you get stuck there. And I think Isaiah Thomas's um his run from the 60th pick to a guy traded for a second pick that didn't even play for the Kings to, you know, going to the six man role with the Celtics to being an all-star, possibly being all NBA this year has been really, really something that sticks out. And he wanted to play in Los Angeles. So as a Lakers fan, that will continue to disappoint me, especially now that he's asking Kobe Bryant for advice, which some people don't like, but I do have to give him credit as Kobe has as well for having the cuts to go up to him and ask for things. A small switch in gears to another non-playoffs topic in the news has been the saga that is LeVar Ball and one that continues to grow steam week after week. The latest for the big baller brand was the recent release of Lonzo Ball's first shoe, which cost the pretty penny of 495 U.S. dollars. And if you're like me that has a size 14 or 15, you'd have to pay $200 more for the increase. Have you put in an order yet for these new sneakers? I, uh, I have not. I, I, you know what? LeVar Ball is a pretty disgusting human being, in my opinion, what he's doing to his kid and, and everything that's going on is doesn't really sit well with me. That said, he is a marketing genius. He's catering to, to the current climate of, of buyers, and, and, I mean, good for them, I guess. But, yeah, not a lot to say on the ball plan. Hopefully Lonzo's career isn't impacted via his dad trying to hog the spotlight. I also wanted to hit on one of your most recent pieces for HoopMag called The Narrative of a Legacy, which looked big picture for how we view accomplishments in the NBA. 
then really focused on LeBron James specifically and his successes while also being compared to Michael Jordan since high school. What was your main motivation for writing that piece, and what would you say the main point or the biggest takeaway is from it? Um, I, I think if you if you've read my stuff or if you've been following me um, a while, I, I'm not really the extras and O's kind of writer. It's pretty rare I'll write something based on the game or technique or you know I, I I'm kind of a big picture guy and I'm a reflective guy and I'm always kind of viewing things in a way where I'm, I'm trying to visualize how they're going to be remembered years from now. Like maybe that's like the romantic in me. But when guys are playing basketball games, I'm always thinking about how are people going to remember this game five, ten years from now. So, you know, with LeBron James, obviously, he's the best player of my generation. I came in to be a basketball fan at the very end of Jordan's run. I don't even remember Bulls Jordan. I wouldn't if there weren't ESPN classics and YouTube. But when when you talk about LeBron James and all of these narratives that get thrust at him both ways from, from his, both his fans and his critics, um, it just it kind of, you know, inspired me to put the difference, I guess, and, and, and try and find some semblance of reason in between. And then actually Howard Beck put out an excellent piece about how there are no more Michael Jordans. And he had quotes from everyone, really. There was a, a million quotes. And one of the great ones in there was from Vince Carter saying that uh, when he was compared to Michael Jordan, you know, don't put that on me. And uh, I think it was really wise and showed showed wisdom beyond Vince Carter's years as a, as a college student to, to not invite that kind of drama in his life and then LeBron James um, is kind of the opposite and has welcomed it his whole career and it, it just kind of set up an interesting comparison and uh, it was a couple of weeks thinking and planning and uh, happy, happy with how it turned out. Yeah I'll definitely attach that to my show notes because it was a great read not only about what LeBron has gone through but just how we view things when they happen in sports and what gets raised and what gets sort of declined when it comes to what's more impressive than another accomplishment is to another one. Now getting to the NBA playoffs. For starters, do you happen to have Commissioner Silver's number to shoot him a text, see if he might be okay to go into a five-game series in the opening round? Yeah, Adam and I aren't on a first-name basis yet, but uh, maybe next year if we get this pod about the same time, uh, we can reapproach that then. I don't know if he'd be up for losing all that money, but it would be nice to have these decided a little bit earlier. And I did mention a couple weeks ago on here that maybe another idea would be you can play a seven-game series, but if a team wins the first three, the series ends. You have to win a game in between that in order to keep it going. I know they wouldn't want to lose that extra revenue for the game, but for us, it would be nice to just be like, okay, we can move on and maybe move things along a little bit. I mean, we, we've never, ever seen um, a team that's down 3-0 come back and win a series, right? It hasn't happened. But I wouldn't want to eliminate that possibility of that ever happening. And I think it will happen one day. But, you know, before, you know, you and I wind up in the dirt, I think it will happen. However, if we're going to talk about theoretical changes, and I'm going to get smacked for this, the NBA needs to focus on, if not parity, preserving integrity at the top. And and that's not two teams going possibly 12-0 and each on the way to the finals for the next three or four years. That's having four or five or six contenders every year with a chance for a dark horse to make some noise. David and Goliath is the most popular narrative in sports, and it simply doesn't exist in NBA basketball, and that's a problem. 
to the people who would tell you that parity has never been a thing in the NBA, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be profitable. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't be enjoyable. You can't tell me the 28 teams that already knew in September, at the end of September, going into preseason, that their team wouldn't be playing in June. They wouldn't enjoy the chance or at least the hope of going a little bit further next year. I really do think the NBA has to make some decisions to limit player movement and focus on having teams be relevant. We mentioned Russ losing to the Rockets already, but many would argue the biggest loser so far has probably been the Los Angeles Clippers, who were dealt another terribly timed injury and bounced in the opening round again, managed to blow a series lead for the fifth year in a row, which is an NBA record, though I don't necessarily put a lot of weight on that. Overall, do you think it's time to break up the core of what this team has been and see if that works out, or is it still time to continue ignoring that flashing panic button that people have been throwing their way? I love the Los Angeles Clippers. I I love this team. I love Love City. I think Chris Paul is excellent. The only person I don't love in the Clippers with the Clippers logo on their shirt is Doc Rivers. But this team is done. It's finished. It's over. I mean, I picked this Clippers team to beat the Spurs in 2015, and I was called a madman. And when it happened, you really felt like this was their this was their shot. I mean, this was the year 2015. They beat the Spurs. Chris Paul has that triumphant moment. They win Game Seven. I mean, it really, really felt like 2015 was the last best chance, um, and it didn't happen. Obviously, they they lost the 3-1 lead against Houston. Things fall apart. 2016. You know, there's just the smallest inkling of hope. Curry got hurt in that first round, and then both Paul and Griffin go down. And, I mean, that was tragic. Maybe the window was open one more year. But as soon as this series started, you just felt like the window was closed. You just felt like it was over. You know, Gobert goes down. He's crawling across the floor. First play of the series. In a series that the Clippers are favorite, and they still managed to lose game one. I mean, this Clippers team just doesn't have it. And they've had a ton of talent. The bench hasn't been great. Doc's GM moves have been terrible. But at the end of the day, they were a top five or 16 talent-wise the last four or five years, and they have nothing to show for it, nothing at all. I mean, it's the greatest era of Clippers basketball, and no one's going to remember that outside of the maybe most most dedicated Clipper fans. Really, really think they have to move on, they have to decide on, on a different direction. And it sucks when all three of your guys are free agents because it's going to be really tough to sell them on staying and then possibly moving them. And, They've got quite quite an offseason ahead of them. I'll throw this in there, too, mentioning Doc Rivers. Kevin Garnett brought the old Celtics band back together for his TNT talk show-esque segment. Paul Pierce getting roasted with retirement gifts. Rondo was there. Kendrick Perkins, big baby Davis, is still with us, so he made an appearance. Notably absent, of course, though to no one's surprise, Ray Allen, which was briefly discussed. First off... I love this segment. I wish we could get an unedited version on maybe HBO or Showtime as well. But I wanted to get your thoughts on it overall, if you've been keeping track of it. And then if you might have found anything interesting from this specific event in particular, from talking about Ray Allen's departure, none of them really seem to be happy with that, to Kendrick Perkins saying that maybe Kevin Durant will one day go back to Oklahoma City. Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the latter there. Kevin Durant is not going back to Oklahoma City, and I think Oklahoma, or I think Kendrick Perkins saw a minute of fame, um, just a, a little star fly over his head, and he sees it and decides to throw out a few more quotes, and he can say whatever he wants. 
the body language and the quotes and the camps firing back and forth and the success that the Warriors are having, I yeah, I don't think that Kevin Durant is going back to Oklahoma City. He's not. But with Boston, with the Ray Allen, with I like this forum. I haven't enjoyed Area 21. I felt like it's actually kind of demeaning, and they've given Kevin Garnett the kids table, and it, it, it's just felt very fake and kind of gross to me most of the year. This was the best uh, edition of it this season. I do like the open forum concept. I do like that Kevin Garnett doesn't filter himself the way that a lot of other players do. But that being said, it would be far more interesting to me if Allen was also at the table. I mean, six guys taking pot shots at a former teammate, giving us a quarter of the picture, isn't really that fun in my opinion, especially when a lot of the context was missed. That being, I think I think it was Pierce who mentioned that Avery Bradley was taking some of Allen's minutes, which is true. You know, there was talk that Allen was going to transition to the bench in a permanent role. There was talk that Allen was going to get traded two or three times in the year and a bit before. Allen was not in a good in a good place with the management. There was always whispers that Rondo and Allen didn't get along. So I think there was a lot that was missed from the other side there. But that's what happens when you don't have the person there to defend themselves. I agree. There is a lot more to the story that people might have forgotten about since that whole saga happened. So starting with the teams actually playing the two series continuing to go on, and we can start with the Western Conference since we finally had an exciting game in Game 5 of the Rockets Spurs. Houston will now have to win two straight, obviously, to advance and would have to win in San Antonio in Game 7. What are the chances you think they're able to turn this thing around and win this series? I, I feel like it's still pretty open, especially with us not really knowing how hurt Kawhi Leonard really is. But this Houston series kind of has a similar feel to the 2015 Clippers in their series versus Houston, where you kind of felt like Houston should win. Like They blew the doors off, of, off the Spurs in game one. It really seemed like things were going in the right direction. Um, Tony Parker gets hurt, and even though Tony Parker might be older than the Earth itself, he's been the Spurs' second best player in the playoffs. He's second in points. He's shooting the best percentages since he was a young buck. I mean, he was a huge, huge loss. The Rockets go on. They come down in the series, down the stretch here. Kawhi Leonard is obviously being up. He's totally out of sync. He's limping around. He's got the ice pack on his knee, and then he sits for for the last possession of the fourth quarter, and he sits all of overtime. And the Rockets just choked it away. I mean, it was a really, really disappointing loss. If you're a Rockets fan, I think you rightfully should feel pretty terrible about it. James Harden played a great game up until, you know, six minutes left in the fourth quarter. And at that point, I think he, he shoots two of seven the rest of the game, the last six minutes of the fourth quarter in overtime. Has four turnovers. Danny Green takes him to the hole, makes him look silly. Uh, you know, and, he, and of course, he gets blocked by Manny Ginobili on the last shot of the game. It was just, it was just a really, really terrible ending to the Rockets in Game 5, and they've got a bit of a hole now for sure. Right, and the Spurs have to be happy with being able to get that win. The injury to Leonard, as you mentioned, Pop getting angry at Powell. The Spurs really relied on Danny Green, Patty Mills, and the hand of Manu Ginobili to get that win. With Tony Parker done for the playoffs, looking farther down the road, do you think they would have any shot against Golden State now with a little bit more depleted of a lineup and having to rely on others to step up for them? No, I don't at all. I don't at all. I think the Spurs are going to get swept in the next round. Um, even if Kawhi Leonard is at 100%, they just don't 
match up well. Aldridge has been horrid. Uh, Pau Gasol is hard to play at certain spots and against the Warriors even harder. Uh, I, I just I don't see it. The Warriors are just kind of back to our whole parody discussion and the unfortunate spot that we're in right now. We've got John Wall of the Wizards and Isaiah Thomas of the Celtics, as we mentioned, battling it out in the East for a chance to play the Cavs. And we're doing this before game five is played, but we can say that one team will at least have to win those two games. Who do you think has the better shot of moving on and being able to ride the series out to face Cleveland? Um, I think Washington should move on. I think they've been the better team through four games. Um, in the first game, obviously, they came out and just punched Boston right in the nose. They went up 16-0. They felt very in charge of that game. They started to slip. Marquise got Morris, and they lost game one. Game two, you know, again, they, they started well, and then they, they played poorly down the stretch, and Boston blew them out. And then, obviously, they beat the crap out of Boston, the two in Washington. I, I just I feel like the Wizards are the better team. I think John Wall is the better guard. I think Bradley Beal is probably the third-best perimeter player in the series. Horford is so up and down in the playoffs. It really, really feels like Washington's the better team here to me. But similar to the situation in the West, I don't either of them present even the smallest threat to the Cleveland Cavaliers. To the Cavaliers and the Warriors, who have their own mini vacations now for having swept their series, which I guess the Warriors are more happy about after saying that there was nothing to do in Utah. Both teams entering the conference finals with 8-0 records because of their sweeps, the first time that's happened in NBA history. You've spoken about it a little bit. Is this more of how great Golden State and Cleveland are this year? Or is it more the overall competition that they have to face in these playoffs isn't the greatest or, or maybe a mixture of both? Um, last year, I would have said that uh, it was a mixture of both. I, th- I think this year, I would say that these teams are just so far and away better. I mean, Cleveland's regular season was a mess. They finished so terribly that people legitimately wondered, myself included, what it was going to look like in the playoffs and if that switch, that you know, proverbial switch, was going to get flipped. I mean, they were absolutely terrible coming down the stretch. But the talent that's Cleveland, this is a 65-win roster, no problem. I, I mean, if you're getting the max effort and the focus every night, this team wins 65 games. Who cares where they're seated? I mean, Darren Williams still has a lot of basketball left. He's an up-and-down player. But he, you know, he's like the seventh or eighth guy for for this Cleveland team now, who came over midseason looking for a ring. Kyle Korver was an All Star two years ago, absolutely lighting it up. I think he's the Cleveland Cavaliers' all time leader in three point percent now at this point. Their team is so deep; they've gotten so much better. Uh, and, and obviously, with the Warriors, you added Kevin Durant. I mean, you miss Kevin Durant for thirteen games that the Warriors win all. I mean, they go on a 13-game win streak with Durant after slipping for a few when he goes out. Uh, you know, Kevin Durant's missing two games the first round of the playoffs. They still sweep. I mean, Steve Curtis backs up and he's missed games. They still sweep. I mean, these teams are just so, so far and above what we've seen, you know, in the past decade and a half. I mean, these are really, really all-time teams for sure. It's interesting with the Warriors because I think, and many others have said this as well, that their most important player isn't necessarily Kevin Durant, but it's actually Draymond Green. And we saw in their clinching win 
that another triple-double from him meant another win for Golden State. They've never lost if he's able to get a triple-double. And he just seems to give them something that you're not going to get from another player in the league. And how important Kevin Durant is to them is obviously high. But when he's not playing, you still see them doing what we've known them to do for the past couple of seasons. Looking at this team overall, I know they've lost some depth from last year, which was important on their bench. How much better is this team from the team that we saw them have last year? I think it's better. Um, It's hard to quantify that. Obviously, they, they were never going to win. 74 games. They weren't going to top a win record last year because they stated like immediately after signing Durant that, that the regular season record happened and it was cool, but too much focus was spent on that. Too many minutes were spent on that, and that was not going to be a priority this year. I mean, this team missed Kevin Durant for what I think it was 18 games. They rested guys regularly. They, you know, doing the regular things. Curry only has to play three quarters, and they won 67 games sleepwalking through the regular season. I mean, this team is better. And as you said, I think Draymond Green and Steph Curry are tied for their most valuable player. I really do. Um, when Curry, I think Curry is a better basketball player than Kevin Durant, and I think that's a bit of a hot take. When Steph Curry is at his best, there's just there's just no answer for a guy with that kind of range, with that kind of speed, with that kind of handle. And as much as the length and the scoring of Kevin Durant is is great, and he's become a much better defender, the Warriors are at their best when Curry's at their best. And Draymond Green makes it all hum. I mean, Draymond, Draymond Green does absolutely everything you can ask for and more. And, and when you, you know, these comparisons are warranted. This Warriors team has won the most games of any team in history over the last three regular seasons. Pick any three regular season span the Bird Celtics, the Magic Lakers, the Jordan Bulls, doesn't matter. The Curry Warriors have won the most games over three years in a row. This team is special, and a lot of that's due to Green. And if you compare him to Rodman, he does the same thing. He gets in your head. He does the wet work. He rebounds. He's a defensive player of the year candidate every year. And on top of that, he's dishing out seven, eight assists. He's shooting 50% from three in the playoffs. He's just a very, very special player that doesn't get his due because he plays a little bit dirty, because he plays on a great team. He's the third or fourth cog in the wheel when it comes to the PR track. But Green is absolutely vital. There's amazing, amazing things for that team. The Cavs have had this mindset, or at least people have given it to them, that once the playoffs come, they'll be able to switch that proverbial switch and get back to that playoff-style championship basketball that we've seen them be capable of in the past couple of years. Earlier in the playoffs, it seemed like they weren't going to be able to do that or it would be iffy for them to do that. But then against Toronto, things started to click. We're seeing LeBron take a more offensive role, if you will, doing a little bit more than we've seen him do in the past, which I guess will have to increase if he were to get to another finals. Looking at this team, do they still stand to have an equal chance of beating this Golden State team once they probably get to the finals again for a third consecutive year? Here's here's an intro. I do not think this Cleveland Cavaliers team has another switch or another switch. I don't think it's it's there for everyone. LeBron James has a switch, and, and there's a difference. And the biggest, um, the greatest reason I can give you for that is Game Three against the Pacers. They're down 25 or 26 at half. Kyrie and Love have been horrid. They sit the entire fourth quarter. LeBron James averages 20 or puts out 26 points, six boards, seven assists, 
zero turnovers, drags them all the way back to a win, tied for biggest comeback in playoff history. I mean, LeBron James legitimately might be playing the best basketball of his career. Um, like DeMarco Rosen said after the press conference, like if we had LeBron James, we'd won too. This Cleveland team is very fortunate. That city is very fortunate to have arguably the greatest player of all time carrying them on good nights and bad nights. Kyrie Irving has been inconsistent. Kevin Love, and, Kevin Love has been bad. I mean, Kyle Korver has been, been hot, and Tristan Thompson does a lot of things well, but this Cleveland team hasn't played their best basketball, and it, and it is scary if you're a fan hoping for... I mean, this is, this is the thing. Since last June, before, before Kevin Durant even went to the Warriors, we had scheduled Cleveland and Golden State for round three. Regardless of what Kevin Durant did in the offseason, we had Cleveland and, and Golden State coming back. Now, the payoff for knowing a year in advance the finals matchup that we're going to be watching for having 28 teams disqualified before tip-off is supposed to be this amazing finals, the three match. I am not inspired by the way the Cleveland Cavaliers have played on the whole and compared to the, compared to the Golden State Warriors because the Warriors are just that good. And while LeBron might be playing the best basketball of his career, I really, if both teams are healthy and the, and the finals started next round, I mean, maybe maybe something will change in the next in the conference finals. I doubt it. We'll see. I think I would have Warriors in a sweep over the Cavaliers because LeBron James just simply can't do it all, not for 16 games, not against the team of the Warriors caliber. Though we should never assume, assuming that we do end up with those finals, which all signs are pointing to that we will, is there anything that you can think of that would be the kryptonite to Golden State what Cleveland, should it be playing its best basketball entering those finals, might be able to do to stop Golden State? Or is it just a matter of Kyrie, Kevin Love, and co., aside from LeBron, are going to just have to put together masterful performances and try and keep up with the Warriors? Um, I guess there's a few things that would have to go right. Um, last year, Kyrie Irving found another gear in the finals. He really did. He was excellent in the finals. Uh, played very, very well, found offense. He was a bit of a pylon in de- on defense in the first couple games. They were uh, The Warriors were targeting him and making him pay over and over. And I don't know if the effort changed or the planning changed or what changed, but Kyrie was a very good player the last five games of that series. Don't need that guy back because he hasn't been present in the first two rounds of this postseason. The other two things is the Warriors get an overdrive. Uh, I'm not going to say arrogance. It's impossible not to be arrogant when you've won as much as they have. But they go for the kill shot often, and they get a little ahead of themselves, where Clay Thompson and Curry and Durant and Green, they start taking really quick shots, really deep shots that, yes, they can hit, but when they're not hitting, waste possessions and a lot of possessions quickly. I think if the Warriors got up a game or two and actually fell into that trap, uh, they'd be in a similar situation to where they were last year where they thought it was over before it was over, and that might be when Cleveland can swing back. The last one for you regarding these two teams is there a team that has the most to lose should they actually lose the finals? Meaning, if Golden State goes down, they'll get ripped for losing with Kevin Durant, obviously, and losing to Cleveland for another year in a row. Cleveland loses, the LeBron haters will return and chastise him for another finals loss. Who do you think will have the most pressure, if you will? Who has the most to lose if they were to? That's um that's an interesting question because you know that with the way Twitter is the way the world is now the way we watch sports 
that whoever loses is going to come out of their sad Jordan on their face and be, you know, the joke of the next six months, regardless of how the series finishes, whether that's four or seven or whatever. But when you look at Kevin Durant and LeBron James, and actually Kevin Durant, you know, selfish plug here, but Kevin Durant and the concept of ring chasing is my next column, which is coming out tomorrow, I think. But, but Kevin Durant, look at what Kevin Durant has to gain and to lose in the series, and look at what LeBron James has to gain to lose in the series. I mean, if Kevin Durant wins this ring, he's going to get a modicum amount of credit. Uh, yeah, he was good. Yeah, he might be their best player, but they didn't need him. They might have won without him. Will be, I, in my you know imagination, short term being spectacularly memorable, what people come away with. If he loses, he is going to get crushed. The Warriors are going to get crushed. You couldn't beat LeBron. Like, you went to seven, you added Kevin Durant, you couldn't beat LeBron James will be shouted from the rooftop in every building in North America. LeBron will get crushed if he loses because he's LeBron James, and you know we should all be used to LeBron James always being under the microscope. However, I don't think very many basketball minds have the Cavaliers winning, and with that comes some reluctance to punish a guy you didn't think should win any. Is there a scenario of what you would prefer, both as a fan and as someone who writes about the sport, whether that's the Cavs winning or the Golden State Warriors winning? Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, I would like to see the or the Cavaliers win. I would love to see this go to seven games. I would love to see, you know, in, in a perfect world, the Warriors go up three, three to zero, and it's the greatest comeback of all time. <laughs> we, we see it for the first time ever in the finals, and that would feel like sweet, sweet justice for a season in which we all kind of had the results pre-recorded in our mind. I think that the Cavaliers have a better, there's a better narrative for, for the upset here and for, you know, LeBron James being one of the greatest, if not the greatest players of all time, having another signature finals than there is for maybe the best team, team we've ever seen on paper to do what they should do, which is win the series. Before I let you go, I wanted to just plug what you have coming up. And since it's the Kevin Durant article for Ring Chasing set for Thursday, I can attach that to my show notes for this podcast on Friday. Is there a little tease that you have for the audience as to what they might find in that piece? Yeah. So, I, you know, I kind of talk about um, in the LeBron James piece, it was how do we measure if you're not first, you're last. And is there context in losing and, and kind of that debate the fans have for this article? It's, you know, how do you balance loyalty to the team that drafts you or loyalty to the team you have the competitive fire that you're supposed to have as an athlete and, and, and trying to win one before it's, it's, it's over. And that's kind of where we go. And I talk about Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry and their decisions this year and Kevin Durant's decision last year. And I actually, went through about 25 years of every player who had been on the MVP ballot that quote unquote ring chased. And yeah, there's some fun stuff in there for sure. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Always enjoy your deep in-depth pieces on this sort of thing. And it was a pleasure getting to catch up with you once more about what's happened this NBA season, what's been going on in the playoffs, what we'll probably end up seeing in however many weeks it'll be until we get to the finals. It's all just a blur until we get there for me. Just many long days. Now we're into the days where we don't even have games being played because of the way the series have gone. But hopefully we're in store for some excitement. Continued success with what you're doing. And thank you again for coming on, Josh. It was a pleasure having you back. No, thank you for letting me come on here and, and blow some hot wind.
We'll close out the show with another edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Kyle Ciciloni. Don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films and we'll have a better idea of what will be in store for you if you do. This week, Kyle will break down Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, now the number one movie in the world and one that almost doubled the original film in Money Made on opening weekend. And much like the credits of Guardian of the Galaxy, stick around to the end of this segment for a special second movie review. You can find Kyle on Twitter and on Periscope. He's at Kyle Ciciloni. That's K-Y-L-E-C-I-C-I-L-I-O-N-I. And also find some of his work at ajazznetworks.com. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Kyle Ciciloni. Thanks, John. We got a double dose for everyone today with movie reviews since we've been on a little break for the past few weeks. Now that the summer movie season is starting, I will hopefully be doing these a little bit more frequently. This week we have probably the biggest movie of the summer, I would argue, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. The newest film by James Gunn, it's the sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy, it came out in 2013 or so, which was praised very highly by most of most people, especially me, I think it's a fantastic movie, and this one is also really good. The opening scene in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is absolutely fantastic, it is without a doubt my favorite scene of the movie, and I can't wait to watch it again. The soundtrack, as everyone always knows with these Guardians of the Galaxy movies, is, is a big part of it. The awesome mix volume 2 now in this film. It's another great soundtrack, obviously. And sort of like how with the first film, I still associate Come and Get Your Love by Redbone with that film. And now I will always think of Guardians Volume 2 when I hear Fleetwood Max The Chain. But I will say some of the songs seemed a little forced in this movie. They were just using any excuse just to be able to play some of the music. It didn't feel very organic. I have a feeling that the shtick of the classic soundtrack uh, might get a little old by the third movie, because they are doing a third one, obviously. Uh, this film's a much more character-focused film than the first movie. It kind of spends time with a lot of the characters. There's even more characters now introduced that become kind of main characters. And the time is pretty evenly split, actually, with all the characters. They did a really good job, and a lot of that has to do with the script. It's very hard to balance a lot of these characters and give them all their moments and have their individual arcs. The big arc in this movie comes to, I mean, obviously, Peter Quill, which is Chris Pratt's character, has a big one, obviously. It's kind of the main one. But Yondu has a very, very big arc in this movie, and it's very well-deserved. It's probably the best one of the movie, I would say. And obviously, Drax has some really excellent moments, as well as Baby Groot. Enough said. Baby Groot steals the show. That's all I'm going to say. Don't want to spoil it for anyone. Kurt Russell's in this movie. He's charismatic as always. He was a really cool addition to the film. He plays Peter Quill's dad. That's not really a spoiler. They show it in the trailer. So what they do with him is pretty fun. And then Sylvester Stallone shows up for a scene or two or three. Clearly just wants to be on this Marvel train, you know, get aboard like everyone else is. So he plays a character. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's going to be set up for a, a future film. Not not his own film, I would think, but probably be the next Guardians, I would think. This movie is also really graphic, not in a gory sort of way, but in the way that like when people die and people definitely die in this film, you see it happen. And it's kind of gruesome, like in the way they die. It's not just like a they get hit in the head with something. There's things that happen that are pretty brutal. Overall, I think Guardians 1 is still a better film. Maybe upon more visits to Guardians 2, I'll feel differently. But I think this one's definitely funnier. It's funnier of the two. It's hilarious. Within the first 30 seconds, I was laughing hysterically, which is good. 
I will also say that the color palette, as we know with the first Guardians, is pretty vibrant. This is even more so. This is like on a whole other level. It is probably the most visually vibrant movie of all the Marvel films, which is pretty awesome because color palettes are, you don't want to be dark and dreary like the DC Universe movies, which are all just gray and gloomy, depressing. Yeah. The third act, I want to talk a little bit about kind of things that kind of fall short in this movie because it's not a perfect film. I think the third act falls apart. The plot is pretty easy to figure out by the time you get to that point. Like, once all the main characters are introduced into the film, which is probably within the first half hour, I think, you kind of figure out where it's leading to and what's going to happen. Not that that really takes you out of the movie, but, yeah. And I will also say the final battle is actually kind of lame. It reminded me a lot of Man of Steel, which, if you don't know, is a bad thing. I'm not going to get into it, obviously, but it's hard to do what they were trying to do and make it work, so, uh, I don't know. And also, for a movie that's paced pretty well, there's a few scenes that kind of drag on for some reason, like way too long. They hold on a couple things like too long. There's one scene that the joke drags on like quite a while, almost in a family guy sort of way, which is not great. And then uh, obviously some of the family storylines seem to be a bit forced than others with certain characters, just to kind of give it that more family feel, because it is a very family-oriented movie. And that's pretty much it. There's five after credit scenes, so if you go to see the movie, stay for all five of them. I only saw two, because they intercut them. They show some credits, and they show one. Then they show more credits, and they show another one. And I was ready to go to bed by that point. And the second film I ended up seeing recently was The Circle, the newest Tom Hanks and Emma Watson film about... Oh, darn, look at that. We're all out of time here. Well, that's a good thing. Here's the review. Don't waste your time. It's not good. And there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to 5 Minutes in the Film Room. I'm Kyle Ciciloni. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on SoundCloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some more NBA playoffs, take a look around Major League Baseball, dive into the NFL, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.